0: Sorry if this is really obvious, but why did the birds... Why did the avian dinosaurs, the bird dinosaurs, survive when the rest didn't?
1: Yeah, good question. Thanks. Don't, I don't know. Oh, cool. Okay,
0: that's something people uh, don't know.
1: Well, this is the thing. Whenever whenever people talk about extinction, right, they want to, like, why why this and why not that? And first you have to remember that, like, most of the things that survived that mass extinction also went extinct, right? So mammals make it through, but most mammals go extinct at that boundary. You know, only a couple of lineages of mammals... Yeah, there's a huge argument about this actually.
2: Welcome to another thrilling installment of the podcast that fans are literally calling the Pint of Science Podcast. That's right, it's the Pint of Science Podcast. The show that accompanies the hit festival taking place this May across 40 of your UK cities, bringing scientists out of their labs and into a pub or cafe near you.
0: Our events aren't just for scientists though, we want everyone in the pub to hear our research stories. Today we find ourselves in the extravagantly decorated Imperial Durbar in deepest South London, Tooting Beck to be precise.
2: We were none other than the Natural History Museum's Anjali Goswami, Professor of paleobiology and research leader in the life science vertebrates division. Angeli's research has taken her on a fascinating journey through evolutionary history and she's published on everything from echolocating whales through to birds of the Mesozoic via mole and dolphin skulls.
0: Honestly, her research output is staggering and we'll be hearing about some of her most exciting discoveries over the next hour. Now without further ado, grab yourself a drink and a comfy chair and fill your ears with a pint of science.
2: This podcast is made possible with help from our sponsors Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and explaining the science behind them.
0: Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Challenges, helps make learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering, or computer science. So if you're inspired by what you hear today and
2: want to learn a little bit of the science behind it yourself, check out Brilliant.org or download the app. There's a link in the description and the first 200 people subscribe will get 20% of their premium plan.
0: So Anjali, thank you so much for coming in on a Sunday, which is not the perfect day to make people do things related to their job, but you've been very generous and given up your time. One of the very first questions I wanted to ask you was, you're a research leader at the Natural History Museum. Imagine I know nothing about that. How does that work?
1: So I actually worked at a university for most of my career. I've only moved to the museum about a year and a half ago, Um, so I used to be at University College London, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm still like an honorary professor there. So I would say the difference being at the museum as opposed to the university is that it is just a lot more research focused. So I spend almost all of my time doing research at the university, obviously there's teaching, and there tends to be more admin in general just because it's a bigger organization. Mm -hmm. So working at the museum is great because it's you know it's a smaller institution it's all very focused on a couple of kind of big questions in terms of understanding biodiversity understanding life in the past the present maybe in the future understanding the universe it's a discovery focused institution so you have a whole bunch of colleagues who are all experts in various groups of animals or plants, or there's a lot of people doing space science. But they're all sort of linked by this discovery focus. And so that's really nice. That's different in many ways from a university. But we all tend to do, I think, a lot more research. We tend to be more focused on collections. So a lot of the work I do is very much, or maybe all the work I do, is really focused on using specimens and using biological collections of this huge diversity of of life. Um that we have or have had on earth to try to answer big questions. What's really nice is that I, I you know I go into work every day and basically do whatever I want, which yeah yeah, so it is uh it is something I think can't be under appreciated, <laughs> yeah, because you know, it does like sometimes I'll be doing something and I'll just think, I can't figure this out right now or I'm kind of bored with this right now, and I'll just stop and do something else for I don't know a week or five years <laughs> I'll go back <laughs> to it later sometimes. Maybe. There are definitely a couple things sitting on my desk that I, you know, was kind of working on in 2012 and then that's more than five years. Seven years. <laughs> <laughs> Being at the museum is great because we have really good facilities and you know, arguably the best collections in the entire
2: world. Yeah. Is it like having specimens on tap? You can just be like, I want to go and I want to look at this species today and then you could just go and dig out
1: So you have to work with the, with the curators who are in charge of, you know, in charge of the collections. But, you know, when you work there, it's it's usually pretty laid back. You can just email somebody or give them a call and say, like, you know, so we work with a lot of 3D scans of things. And sometimes I'll be looking at, like, a bat skull. And sometimes on like, a scan, it's sort of hard to make out sutures and things like that. But if you're actually looking at a specimen, it can be easier. So, you know, I will just call up and say, like, I'm staring at this thing. And I just I think I need to look at a real animal for a second. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I'll just run over you know, and, you know, they'll unlock the right cabinet and I'll just spend an hour or so looking at them and then run back. Or sometimes we'll, you know, bring them over to, to my office and hang out to them for a little bit.
0: <laughs> it's interesting that you say that sometimes you need to look at the real physical specimen because... Earlier on when we were talking about this, we were actually thinking probably the scanning allows you this huge level of resolution that yeah. you can't actually get with the, the human eye. But you actually sometimes you need the physical specimen to get that insight.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is sort of true. Um, you know, you do get better resolution with CT scans, especially for small things. But there are there are parts of it that are sort of easier to see with the naked eye. So sutures sometimes, like if they don't have differences in light or dark or the material, sometimes it's easier to see them with the naked eye actually than it is uh, on a CT scan. And especially sometimes with fossils and things like that, actually like they'll have a little, it's easier on fossils in some cases because they'll sometimes get dirt in between the sutures and that doesn't get captured in a CT scan. But if you're looking at the specimen, you can you can see it.
0: Absolutely. And I guess when you're working at the, just to take it back to what you said about it's sort of a bit of a playground as far as your research goes, you can do what you feel like doing. Yeah. I assume you are still slightly bound by, do you still have grants that oh, govern yeah. projects? So you're kind of maybe like a five-year period, you're going to be focusing on one specific question.
1: Um, I don't know. I think over a five-year period, I'd probably focus on, I don't know, five or ten different <laughs> questions. Yeah. I think if you looked at what was going on in my lab right now, there's probably about maybe three major projects that we're doing. At the moment, but then there's a whole bunch of side projects too. But of course, I mean the main thing that I'm beholden to would be you know the big grants that we have that are paying people salaries and and paying for our equipment and you know so we do want to get the results of those moving. But in a lot of cases, you know there's different aspects of those grants
0: that you can switch between. Uh huh. And how big is your team?
1: I have to do a count, let's see. <laughs> so I've got um, three postdocs. Okay, two PhDs since I'm primary supervisor on and two more that I'm second supervisor on but really closely, working with them really closely so they're in the lab pretty often. And then master students, at the moment there are two master students working in my lab and I've got another two starting pretty soon and I have a research assistant also. And then a bunch of you know, scientific associates and stuff who, who come and go.
0: It's a pretty sizable team. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty It's pretty big, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I feel
1: feel like it's usually about eight to ten, which is great. Everyone feeds off of each other, and it's really nice. Nice.
2: Because of it, it's the museum. Is there any crossover with, like, the public-facing side of it at all?
1: Oh, yeah. So that's another one of the big draws, actually, for moving over to the museum, was that you do get to just kind of translate your research immediately to the public so most of the people in my lab will go and do public talks you know like nature live or there'll be evening things like science uncovered or things like this at the museum in the evenings and so you know most of them are involved with stuff like that and i I do a bunch of it as well so that's really nice actually that must be
0: really nice for focusing you as well because like one of the common things you come across in science communication is that someone spent so long looking at that tiny niche question that when they do go out to speak to the public, they've forgotten what is the simple way to make it kind of interesting because for you, it might be very interesting like one suture on one skull (laughs) from one area of the museum, but obviously you've got to kind of blow it open to the Except for obviously niche skull enthusiasts, <laughs> yeah. you probably find that awesome.
1: Well, I think when you're working on fossils, it's pretty easy to find the niche enthusiasts.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. To be Quite fair, it's almost right. harder
1: to like focus them back out to the big picture. Yeah. Now you're yeah. like, ah, what is this dinosaur? But why is that important?
0: That yeah. actually sounds a lot like you, Jim. The, yeah. the niche fossil, fossil enthusiast. <laughs> yeah. That's very true. You referred there to having these three big kind of research questions right now in your lab and. I actually think first it would be interesting to ask you a little bit about what got you into research. We're going to bring it back around to those big three questions. I, in my research, saw that you did your, you started your kind of research career at the University of Michigan. And yet your BSc, it's funny on all the kind of like bios I've read of you, your BSc is specifically, people go into detail on it and they say you were looking at how early whales transitioned from land to water. It's quite rare that people actually have like what their BSc was focused on, was that a research project you did? Yeah,
1: that was my undergraduate thesis project. So in the States, it's not really normal for, it's much more normal here that everybody does a research project, but there you only do it if you're doing an honors degree. Uh, So uh, my honors project was using uh, geochemistry. So looking at different kinds of carbon and oxygen isotopes to try and figure out which of the early whales was still kind of land bound and which ones were actually properly marine animals. Oh, okay,
2: amazing.
1: Yeah, it was kind of a crazy thing. Yeah, that's very (laughs) cool. When I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So it's always amazing to me here in the UK, actually, how people are expected to know what they want to do with their
0: lives. <laughs> and I mean, you're I like do, 16 or so. I know. Yeah.
1: Like, I, I still am not entirely sure that i figured it out, to be honest. Like, this is okay for now, but we'll see how it goes. And so, you know, when I was, I always liked biology. I always liked nature. and I always liked hiking and stuff like that. But I also like random stuff. I don't know. I went to... A summer art program in New York when I was in when I was sixteen, and then realized I had no talent. I like, <laughs> no. You
0: know, sure, that's that's no, no,
1: it's really true. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's Actually, my earliest memory, which actually sort of, I think kind of reflects what I'm doing now is that when I was like four years old, uh, we lived in India for a year because my parents' visas ran out. And so uh, while we were there, we went to um, Kanakisli, which is this big national tiger reserve. It's where the Jungle Book was based. Oh, no. And I, I'm very serious. My absolute earliest memory is being on an elephant and seeing a tiger. <laughs> my uncle actually gave me a picture of that tiger like 20 years later because he had one in his album. So I definitely remember that because my cousin, who was a year younger than me, started crying and I was really afraid that we were going to die. <laughs> and I actually, just we went to India Um, We just got back last week and took my kids, um, and we went an elephant and saw a tiger in this tiger reserve that I worked in for a while later. And so. And you will like
0: remember this. Yeah, exactly. This is gonna (laughs) be your first memory. (laughs) Oh, did it bring it
2: all rushing back?
1: Yeah, it definitely seemed like a clear parallel. But yeah, so I've always liked biology and stuff. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, My dad's a a doctor, um, but I. Knew I didn't want to do that, quite frankly, because I don't really like being around sick people. <laughs> I, mean, I don't really like being indoors that often either. But I did like biology. So, you know, when I went to uh, university, you know, I started to major in, in like natural resources and biology. But I liked camping, and there was a class I was being offered to go camping for eight weeks in the summer, and you got credit for it, it was a party that I went to in my dorm, East Quad, University of Michigan, where this woman who I was talking to, we were talking about all the places that we like to go hiking and camping, and she's like, I'm taking this class this summer, you should take this. So thank (laughs) you, (laughs) Shona. And it was a geology class, and I didn't know anything about geology. And I didn't care about geology like rocks, yeah. But I went, and one of the instructors on that course was a paleontologist, and so we were talking, you know, during this eight weeks of camping, and I realized that all the things I thought were really exciting about biology and interesting about like ecology and all that stuff kind of multiplied when you take paleontology because it's all that plus all of a deep time. Yeah. So when I got back, I changed my major, or rather, I dropped the natural resources and I added geology and double majored in those two, and then my thesis project was basically you know cutting across those by looking at you know, biology and deep time.
0: So I myself, coming from a biomedical <laughs> background, wasn't sure what deep time meant until I did some googling around. So, actually,
1: like, I'm not sure what the definition is. Is just anything outside of like the last. 10,000 years or something?
0: (laughs) I mean, I like that you said it like that. That will be reassuring to a lot of scientists who just assume they're the only one that doesn't quite know how to define something.
1: I use it constantly.
0: (laughs) It's up to you. We can either have a take where you go, deep time is this, confidently, with Google, or we can have that in there just to reassure scientists the world over. As you
1: like. You can have that in there if you want. (laughs) We
0: do both versions. So we have have the honest version. (laughs) Now we can also have the version where we'll... We'll have this all as a feature. We'll have it as the... Deep time <laughs> question, and at the end, we can superimpose my well delivered Wikipedia answer. <laughs> Deep time is the concept of geologic time. The modern philosophical concept was developed in the 18th century by Scottish geologist James Hutton. The age of the earth has been determined to be, after a long and complex history of developments, around 4.55 billion years. That didn't actually help very much. Did it? It didn't really tell us much at all.
1: Wikipedia also does not
0: know. No, no. no one knows what deep time is. Is the main take-home point. Okay. Oh,
2: and you got to go travelling, I think, in your early career. You got to go to some pretty cool places yeah
1: so I definitely have spent lots and lots of time like traveling and, mm-hmm. and being out in the woods so actually even though I did paleontology for my undergraduate degree I was still pretty wishy-washy at the end of my my bachelor's degree and I didn't want to go straight into a, a phd program because I wanted to, it's a big commitment doing a PhD so you want to make sure you Actually, want to do it. So I actually then moved to India for two years and worked for first for WWF, what Worldwide Fund for Nature,
2: yeah, (laughs) wrestling, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah. Clarify. And then for Project Tiger, basically working in national parks there and looking at ecotourism and things like that. And so you know, I basically just drove around this tiger reserve every day for a couple of years and. You know, saw like how tigers responded to tourists and went around the forest villages and gathered all these data on how income from tourism kind of makes its way through these villages and stuff. And I love that place. I still have lots of friends there and, you know, took my kids there a couple of weeks ago. But it's in the middle of this huge Triassic outcrop. So, you know, these are these rocks from right after the biggest mass extinction, 250 odd million years ago. And I kept on looking at those rocks and thinking, like, I wonder what fossils are in there. And so, you know, if you're staring at a tiger and thinking about the fossils and the rocks behind it that's probably a good sign <laughs> yeah. Um, So uh, yeah so then I was like I should probably go back to go, yeah.
2: Yeah,
1: go back to paleontology so I did. And then when I was a grad student, my uh, PhD supervisor had field programs in South America and Madagascar and so he took me to, to field work out there so I got to go to Madagascar, I got to go to Chile and Peru. And I also did a couple of seasons out in the west of North America, which is, you know, one of the most amazing places for, for fossils in the world. Yes, yeah, so I got to do lots of stuff like that and, and, you know, started my field program in India when I was a grad student, actually, so in Central and now South India. Uh, looking at stuff from the last mass extinction because basically, even though actually, you know, most of my research is very computational, I need to spend at least a, a solid chunk of the year <laughs> hiking around. Outside somewhere.
0: Yeah. This travel then, this is transition now into your PhD times, and that was at the University of Chicago, right? Yes, that's right. I have written down the evolution of morphological integration in the mammalian skull. Yeah. What essentially then, to someone who knows very little about the field of paleobiology, what exactly were you doing then for your PhD?
1: So when I started off, I was going to do something that was more kind of ecological, looking at ecology in deep time, but in one of the seminars that I was in, one of the kind of classes where we would read lots of different papers, there was a paper by a geneticist actually, looking at not just characteristics of organisms, but how the relationships between those characteristics, which are caused by coming from like the same genes or the same kind of developmental pathway, the same kind of tissue, how those, the relationships among those different traits shape how they can evolve. And there was a lot of theoretical stuff and stuff in model organisms about how that could shape evolution on really big time scales, but it hadn't really been applied to kind of deep time, but of course, it was making all these hypotheses about how things should evolve in deep time but not actually being tested. And so I thought, well, this is a really interesting question, and paleontologists aren't really working in this field. I mean a couple, but not really very many. And actually most of the ones who had were you know in the '50s and 60s mm-hmm. so I thought, well, I'll give that a go. You know, I went to my PhD supervisor and said, I think I've completely changed my mind over what I want to do. I want to maybe do this instead. And it wasn't a field he knew anything about, but he was like, sure, you know, let's read some papers about it and let's, let's figure it out. And so basically what I did is I gathered a whole bunch of 3D data. So this is shape data. So basically you take an object. I was focusing on the skull. So you take something like a skull and you try to... Describe what it looks like using 3d coordinates so xy and z coordinates And you mark them in a huge variety of skulls And then you can analyze those to look at how different different parts of the skull are and you can reconstruct their evolution and things like that And you can reconstruct how if one part of the skull changes in a certain way Does another part of the skull also have to change or can they kind of evolve independently from each other if there's really tight coordination among parts of the skull um, you could argue that sort of limits how much they can evolve because if something changes one way and something also has to change but that makes it non-functional for its primary purpose well then it'll kind of hold the other thing back from changing because that would be kind of evolutionarily
0: you know unfit so you know. what would be an example of something like that like a part of the jaw might change that would mean yeah the cranium or something has to what, what would be a good example of that
1: just look at different parts of the jaw right so say like Say the front and the back of the jaws were were really um, tightly, what we'd say integrated, really coordinated with mm. each other, and you couldn't evolve really big canines without screwing up your molars, say. Okay. And so um, if you need really big canines to kill something, or you need really big canines to you know, display that you're a really strong male to the females uh, without screwing up your molars so you can't actually chew your food, then you probably aren't going to be able to evolve the canines that way. And so the idea is that over the course of evolutionary time, if there's a lot of selection for one thing in a certain direction and something else in a different direction, then maybe you might break up those relationships
0: somehow. So the best example of that that I can remember from my (laughs) degree off the top of my head was like Darwin's finches where you've got like, two different kinds of species of finch on two islands, right, where the food sources were completely different. Right. They diverged in their evolution because they had to eat. <laughs> so yeah, they, exactly. they evolved in a certain way. Yeah, Is right. that a similar sort of thing?
1: Yeah, so if you have really strong selection on, on some characteristics to evolve in a certain way, ideally you wouldn't want something else holding that back so that they can you know, fulfill this really important function. Sure. Yeah, so, so along those lines. But we didn't know that, or we still don't really know. You know, there's a, a lot of hypotheses, but not necessarily a huge amount of comparative data. Mm -hmm. to test that. So that's been basically what my thesis was about and has kind of continued to be
0: and at some point during this, you found yourself transferring to the UK system. So you finished a PhD. OK,
1: so um, the advice I would give to people is uh, don't wait until you're done with something to figure out what you're going to do next, <laughs> unless you don't like paying rent and yes. eating. I guess it would have been kind of, you know, 2004 is when I was thinking about this. And I'm not sure if this is OK to talk about. But, you know, the Bush years seemed bad at the time. <laughs> <laughs> now, now they seem like this, like, fluffy you remember the good old years?
0: Bush times? Yeah, time. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah so few, with Those, days. like, crazy wars is Yeah. That adorable? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like, how could it get worse? Yeah. <laughs> we found I mean. that <laughs>
1: Yeah. Hold my beer. So, two thousand four was like, you know, when it was when Bush was up for re-election and things didn't seem so great. And I just thought this country is insane, and maybe I should take a time out from the states. That is actually, you know, part of the reason I thought to move. I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, and gathered all this data, and there was a lot of interesting things that I had discovered. But as any decent research project should do, it opened a huge amount of new questions, right? Mm -hmm. So I could identify these patterns of trait relationships in these various groups of mammals. I can show how some of them evolved in certain ways, and I could test some of the hypotheses. But I also realized that the questions were more complicated, We needed more data from developing organisms, so looking not just at adults, which is what I had done, adults and fossil adults, but looking at embryos through different stages of of their development and seeing how these relationships actually form through development, and also coming up with some more um, accurate or more powerful tools for actually trying to measure these relationships and also how we can simulate them and things like that. And so when I was thinking about the two people who I thought had the expertise to best guide me in those ways, both of them happened to be in London at the time. So one was uh, Marcelo Sanchez Viagra, um, who's an evolutionary developmental biologist, who at the time was at the Natural History Museum, and David Polly, who is a quantitative paleobiologist who does lots of you know, interesting modeling and quantitative analyses. And um, he was at Queen Mary at the time. And so I wrote a fellowship application through the U.S. National Science Foundation to work with both of them. And so I, I got the grant and moved over here a couple weeks after I finished my PhD for a two-year fellowship yeah, that ended in 2007. planned it all so well.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so not the story of most yeah. people's PhDs. <laughs> yeah.
1: So within a year, both Marcelo and David left, <laughs> left the UK, oh. but I stayed. The project was going really well, I think. And I was at the National History Museum, which was a fantastic place to work, but within, I think it was about maybe the summer after my first year. There was a job opening for, I think it was a three-year position at Cambridge as a lecturer to cover somebody else while they were on a sabbatical, for a long sabbatical to work on a project. And so I applied and got that, which was great. Two years turned into, you know, know, five. Um, But then a year after I was at Cambridge, this job at UCL opened up, which was a permanent job, so yay, and that was actually joint between the biology and geology departments. Okay. I've always gone back and forth between geology and biology in my careers, but every time I'm in one or the other, I miss the other half, <laughs> and so having a position that was joint between the two departments was perfect. Yeah, obviously everyone stresses over jobs and things like that, but it actually worked out fairly smoothly, I think, in getting jobs at times where I needed jobs and, and where I wanted to be, which yeah. is London. Yeah, you, you probably know. played a big
0: part in that and you realize you're <laughs> probably talking about it like it's luck yeah
1: well you know having lots of papers and I think also the fact that I work sort of at the interface of these fields helps a lot actually people are really into interdisciplinary science in general you know it just means that when you're talking to lots of different colleagues you have many more overlaps than if you're really really focused on one thing
0: and yeah I think it as well as being great for grants and and for yourself it's also just great for the public because I think I think that interdisciplinary thing should be stressed more in like education quite often because I feel as though, and I think they are trying to do that, I, certainly in the Scottish education system I live up in Glasgow, uh, there's a big push to stress the interdisciplinary natures of some of these sciences because it does make something so interesting. If you know that by studying... You know, if you just sell it to someone as you know how it all connects basically. Rather just like physics
2: and like chemistry and or whatever and they're just not connected in any way.
0: Yeah. And a lot
1: of the boundaries between these fields are really antiquated, right? They're sort of like set from when we didn't really know that much about them. Right. (laughs) But when as you start to study something, you start to realize that you're basically studying something that you wouldn't necessarily fit into, you know, a specific topic, right? So I'm a paleontologist, but if you look at what I work on, I don't think many people would actually describe it as paleontology. You know, most people would say it kind of bends more with genetics and development hmm. um, in, in terms of the sorts of questions that I think about and the sorts of data that I work with. And... I
0: definitely think of it. It' been We were saying earlier, weren't we, it'd been stressed to me a bit more at... Uh... At that age where the UK makes you decide your entire future, I think (laughs) I might have made some different decisions just because now, as you know, knowing as I do all the connections between these things, basically the world of paleobiology seems extremely interesting to me. Yeah. But too late for me. (laughs) Never too late.
2: Angelina knows plenty about where we came from and the biological past of life on Earth. But how do we calculate the incredible complexity of life, evolution, and where every living thing on Earth came from? How do we get to the incredible tree of life we know today?
0: This podcast is made possible with help from Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org is a website and app which teaches you science from the ground up by setting daily challenges and explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org helps make learning a daily
2: habit. Every day they publish challenges that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science.
0: Each problem provides you with the skills and framework you need to tackle it, so you learn the concepts by applying them. There are quizzes if you want to learn more, and a community of fellow problem solvers if you get stuck.
2: And Brilliant.org have a course on computational biology which can help you learn the basics of calculating what makes us tick. Their upcoming chapter on the Tree of Life is a great place to start.
0: Here's something else to help your knowledge evolve. We've put a link to Brilliant.org in the episode notes for this podcast. The first 200 people to sign up through the link will get 20% off their premium plan. Now is the time to tell us what are the three big questions you're looking at right now okay we can do the one at a time
1: (laughs) the biggest one and the one that you know the majority of my lab is focused on is uh, what shapes the diversity of vertebrates so vertebrates these are you know everything from fishes to frogs and salamanders and all the reptiles and birds and mammals Um, we mainly focus on the tetrapods which are the ones that are you know everything other than fish basically (laughs) and so what we try to do is, is understand biodiversity from the perspective mainly of not how many species there are, but what those species look like. So the diversity of form, essentially, or shape. And so what we do is basically gather these huge 3D data sets, usually of skulls, for as much of the living diversity as we can reasonably gather, and as many good fossils as we can include in there, and then try to reconstruct how their forms evolve, and why, for example, why some groups are really diverse, why other groups are not so diverse, why uh, some groups, you know, have survived extinctions, why other groups maybe haven't and why certain forms seem to evolve over and over and over again and other kinds of forms maybe evolve like once or twice or maybe not at all. When you envision all the different ways that an animal could look, you can probably envision a lot more things than we actually ever see, right? Like dragons, right? Dragons are a thing that doesn't exist, right? Because uh, What?
2: Sadly.
0: Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they
1: have, they've got six That's limbs so and, you know, all the terrestrial vertebrates have four limbs, right? So th- why, why don't you have six-limbed vertebrates? Things like that. So, You know, what shapes, what sort of variation exists across different organisms in general, but mainly I focus on the vertebrates. And so we can look at that from different perspectives. So a paleontologist would generally think about this, you know, from a deep time perspective, and the sorts of data that we have for things like that are things like the environment, how has the environment changed, how has extinction shaped diversity going through those events, you know, how has climate changed and things like that. Um, It's related to environment, of course. Mm. A developmental biologist or geneticist might look at this from a different perspective and think, well, how do you make that shape, and if you make that shape in this way, does that mean that you know, the embryo is inviable invi- invi- at this stage, or do these sorts of developmental pathways not allow that to happen? Does this gene require this to happen in this way, not this way? And those perspectives tend to be fairly separate, so you get geneticists and developmental biologists working on model organisms, so things you can raise in the lab, like mice or chicks, And you get paleontologists dealing with these giant data sets, but usually at a much kind of coarser scale. And so we have different groups of people answering the same question, but with completely different kinds of data. And so what we do in my lab is run in between that. So we basically try and generate these big data sets for living and extinct organisms and look at questions both in terms of how what I would call extrinsic factors like environment or species interactions, ecology, affect why things look the way they do, but also how development shapes why, what kind of variation can exist in the first place at all? Because that's what natural selection has to act on. You know, that's the main thing that we do in my lab. So we build these giant databases, you know, across vertebrate diversity, and then we develop a whole bunch of mathematical tools, basically, to then. Analyze those data sets.
0: I knew it would be something like, I was like, that's going to require something really difficult to compare. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't sound like an easy thing yeah. to assess.
1: Oh yeah, we spend a whole bunch of time just trying to figure out how to actually do this, right? Because on the one hand, we have some basic tools for comparing things that are pretty similar to each other in relatively small data sets. But once you ramp that up to the kinds of data sets that we're talking about with you know, thousands of species, the actual points of comparison across species really diminish. You know, so if you want to compare, them. Yeah, You say a tiger to a lion, you have thousands of points of comparison on their skulls. If you want to compare, you know, a tiger to a horse or a kangaroo, those points will reduce because they might not have the same bones in the same places. The points of comparison are are harder to identify. And if you want to compare any of those things to a snake or a salamander, then, you know, we've run the numbers and the points of comparison are like 12. (laughs) You know, so it's like, you know, 12 little 3D coordinates for a skull when you've just spent years (laughs) building this huge data set. Not so great. So we developed these methods where you can actually analyze the surfaces of these you know, 3D shapes. And it's very, very tedious, and it takes forever. And then there's all kinds of troubleshooting. But what we end up with are these really, really nice, kind of high-density 3D representations that describe the shape of these specimens. And then we can analyze those coordinates, so those 3D landmarks. So we'll end up with like thousands of 3D points describing one species. And then we have that same data set for thousands of species, and then we can reconstruct how the skull evolves and kind of, you know, a completely new level of detail.
0: So it sounds like one of those, those things on the one hand that would be massively assisted by like modern automation. And I guess to some extent, maybe artificial intelligence. Can you design, I don't know, machine yeah, learning like algorithms, algorithm. algorithms that will yeah, yeah. that will do this for you?
1: What we're looking at is at such a huge degree of, di- of diversity that like, if we only wanted to compare the shapes to each other, you could probably get away with it but we don't want to just look at the shapes. We want to look at the different parts of those shapes. So we want to look at the individual bones of the skulls. We want to look at the different regions of the skulls. We want to look at the relationships among those regions, you know, and whether they're evolving in a coordinated way. And so with automated methods, you could look at the entire structure. How is a giraffe different from a tiger different from a salamander? But you couldn't look at, you know, how does the, you know, mouth of a giraffe relate to how the brain of the giraffe is evolving versus how those things are related in a tiger versus salamander. You can't really do that with the automated methods yet. You know, to be honest, it's really, really hard for us to do manually, uh-huh. you know, like.
2: So trying to teach your computer to do it is probably like.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is really complicated. You know, I spend, I don't know, I try to spend like half of each day digitizing my mammal skull so I'm doing the mammal part of my data set and I know mammals really really well right I've been studying mammals for over 20 years now actually so I do know mammal skulls pretty well you know I'll look at a bat skull and just think like what bone is this you know where is the parietal it's supposed to be here you know if I was looking at a human skull I know where it is but I look at a whale skull and you're just like god where is it i don't know that machine learning will really be able to cover the range of variation that we are dealing with not for a while uh-huh
0: it sounds similar to in the world of like cell biology i know a lot of um citizen science projects exist yeah. because sourcing it out to lots and lots of enthusiastic people with judgment and eyes yeah. is actually a much simpler way of approaching these big data sets than to try and as you say program a computer to do the job yeah. of that requires a lot of, basically, judgment on a one-to-one <laughs> basis. Because we saw that a lot
2: of the scans were available to download as well, saw that. so is that something that you're hoping is going to be an aspect of it? <laughs>
1: In, in terms of getting more people to do stuff like this. Yeah, 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 hopefully. So we have a we just submitted um, a paper that describes exactly what we do in excruciating detail. <laughs> and the hope is that more people will give it a go and improve it. Yeah, you know, this is science, right? So everything that we do is imperfect, but hopefully an improvement in whatever was done before. So what we're doing isn't perfect by any stretch. There's all kinds of things about it that are not ideal. To
0: <laughs> it's we're, science. Yeah. We'll almost certainly have some listeners who are fans of getting involved in citizen science. Is there a way people can get involved right now with... Any of this analysis?
1: Well, right now we're sort of at the phase where we're doing the big, large-scale um, analyses. So I think right now we're not quite at the phase where we can involve people in it. Sure. Although I'd love down the line to involve people. There was a project up in Sheffield that was looking at bird beak evolution. I don't know if you've I've heard about this. They had a website called Mark My Bird, and in that case, they actually just had a couple of landmarks that were the same on every single specimen. You know, tip of the beak. You know, size of the beak. Actually, when I got um, the grant for this big vertebrates project, I went and talked to them to see if we could implement something like, like that. In that case, like their data points are are so similar across all of their specimens that, and they're doing 10,000 species of birds, really amazing project, uh-huh. all being done by citizen science. So, if people do want to do stuff like that, I would direct <laughs> them actually to Mark my Bird as a, as a great way of, of of starting off, and you know, give us a couple more years, and maybe we'll be at a point where we could do that. But I think right now. Our, our data sets are, are too complicated, because we, on, a, on our average scales, we're probably landmarking something like, those oh, 60 to 70 landmarks, you know, and you have to be able to know, like, where is the pridal, hitting the frontal, hitting the squamosal. like what does squamosal look like in this versus that? And so I can if-
0: imagine you can make it quite fun though, being as you are kind of like Dr. Doolittle <laughs> with skulls. <laughs>
1: I don't know if anybody in my lab agrees, but I really enjoy doing it
2: personally. <laughs> I'll, def- like, I'll definitely sign up. <laughs> yeah.
1: It is quite cool because like, basically we have these like tablets, right? I have a tablet in my office where, you know, we just have a pen and you just like, zoom the skull around and put your little points on there. And you know, the, the later really annoying part is the troubleshooting and, you know,
0: and the coding and all of that stuff. Do you actually know how to code?
1: Yeah, it's pretty necessary at this point, or essential at this point in science, to be able to have some ability to code. We do very quantitative science, and so everybody in my lab is, very few people enter as an expert coder, but probably everyone who leaves, <laughs> uh, leaves as an expert coder, or much better coder than the average person at their career stage. Uh, I spend a lot of time coding and debugging and figuring out why our code doesn't work, and writing new code, and uh, troubleshooting all of it.
0: It's such an incredible skill to be giving people as well because it's it's so valuable now. And and something
2: that is also an entire field in itself as well that you're using to... Do something entirely different.
1: I worry that a lot of times students coming to my lab to work on things might be disappointed because they think they're going to come and do some fun paleo stuff. And usually the first like question God. I ask them is, "Can you code?" <laughs> and if you can't code, are you are you comfortable with learning how to code? Because you are going to have to be comfortable learning how to code. And the first thing you're going to do is take a coding class if you don't mm-hmm. know how.
2: Jeff, um, competitions and stuff to see, you know, who can do the most, who can do it fastest, anything like that?
0: Because
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> we're like, who can do the best? That, no, yeah. Yeah. That's
0: the one. <laughs> yeah. the quality, my not whole... quantity. <laughs> yeah there's a lot of um, these kind of projects get taken into schools now isn't there yeah. obviously we need to be quite well developed end stage projects making them part of classroom learning is really fun because yeah. as you say you can almost kind of gamify the learning there you can turn it into yeah. a fun activity that people enjoy doing and get a bit competitive over like <laughs> yeah. you just trying to
1: well one thing that we do is that you know we have these really nice kind of 3D renderings of all these different skulls and then we reconstruct how they evolved that means that we can come up with kind of hypothetical reconstructions of what ancestors would have looked like for things where we don't have good fossils. So we did this for our bird data set. Birds have a notoriously bad fossil record in terms of completeness, they're always like squashed and so we came up with an idea for, you know, what we would expect the ancestor of all living birds to look like based on what living birds look like. And then we made a 3D model of it and you can download it from our uh, website and print it out yourself. And you know, so I thought it'd be really cool down the line to build some tool to go into, you know, schools or just the general public where people could pick out different species, pick out the points that they wanted to compare, and then reconstruct the hypothetical ancestor and get like a three D image that they could just print out or that whatever. Absolutely That's awesome really cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've definitely I remember there was something at Western Park Museum in Sheffield about Fifteen years ago, <laughs> it was a very, very, very basic version of what you just described. It was like they had the ambition that you just described, but they created something that was <laughs> not It was fun. It was fun. Right. No,
1: if it was fifteen years ago, they wouldn't have been using the technology. I
0: have a feeling yeah. they were. They were struggling with the lack of technology at that yeah. time.
1: I mean, at this point, this is only possible because there's like CT scanners, you know, that are available, and we have these little surface scanners that we take all over the world and scan fossils at all these different museums. So we've probably gone to like. 50 different museums to gather our data set so far and you couldn't do that 10 years ago
0: (laughs) so are you using sort of the most cutting edge scanning techniques right now in your life yeah and, and what are they? Is it CT scanning? What First of all, what does CT stand for?
1: Oh, uh, computer tomography.
0: Uh, and the basic kind of idea of that is it's similar to an x-ray, right? It is
1: x-ray, yeah. It's x-ray, yeah. Yeah, basically. And so you can get these really nice 3D images of your, of your objects, you know, at really high levels of detail. But you can do, you know, really, really tiny objects and get these beautiful 3D images of what they look like. Um, and you can look at their internal structures so you can look at their external structure and yeah analyze them with all the tools that we use but yeah it's basically x-ray at the museum we have a couple of really nice micro ct scanners so we use those for gathering data at the museum or at other museums a lot of museums have them too not most of them don't have ones as nice as ones we have <laughs> okay. and then we also have these handheld surface scanners so they're like laser scanners or white light scanners they sort of look like something from Star Trek, to be honest. They're like, yeah, and they're just these big wands that you can basically, you know, scan an object. And so we travel around with those ones. So you get the outside. You can't get the inside of a specimen that way. Like, you can't with CT. Sure. But we're for now, we're just dealing with the outsides anyway.
0: Cool. I saw on your website as well that you... um. This is just something I wanted to bring up, essentially, to shoehorn in a joke, really. But uh, <laughs> I noticed you, you've used uh, dental microware to examine whales, is that right? Whale no, tea.
1: Triassic amniotes.
0: Oh, sorry, Triassic amniotes. I always, I always mix those <laughs> yeah, up. It's yeah. a problem I have. It's yeah. an easy
1: mistake. I, <laughs>
0: I just basically heard dental microware and thought of like tiny braces. I'm not exactly sure what <laughs> what actually is dental microware. i
1: never, I can't believe that's never occurred to me
0: before.
1: <laughs> <laughs> not, that's not what it is. <laughs> no, dental microware, and this is going way back. This is like actually the project that made me decide to do something different for my PhD. But dental microware is basically looking at the essentially the scratches and the pits that form on your teeth as a result of what you're
0: eating. Oh, microware. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the wear on your
1: teeth, but it's a small wear on yeah. your teeth.
0: I see, I see, okay. Well, the joke was delivered, yeah. so I think it was worth asking.
1: But it is a really I cool It does cool sound well? really interesting, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because basically, you take something that, like in that case, I was looking at stuff that died like, you know, 220 million years ago, and like, what did this eat the day before it died? Wow. You know? oh. Yeah, so it's
2: really nice. Should we eat less sugar? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, after them very well (laughs) going back to what we were talking about research and stuff and I think you mentioned extinctions which I I think is sort of a bit of the focus of something you've been
0: doing recently yeah so the the second sort of major focus I guess okay so
1: the other one um the second one I suppose has um you know, very long history, is uh, looking at extinction. In particular, looking at the last mass extinction. So this is the end-Cretaceous one that saw the end of the, like the non-bird dinosaurs. Yeah. Oh, sad times. Yeah, <laughs> for the dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. It worked out okay for the
0: mammals. <laughs> have you seen yeah. Jim's tattoo? Uh, He's a big uh, dino yeah, fan. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> you have to show
1: that to my daughter when she gets her. So Uh, working around the KPG mass extinction as it's it's called the Cretaceous Paleogene mass extinction and you know K because I guess in German it's spelled with a K I was going to say that's
0: a confusing word it is it is
1: and you know a couple years ago it got changed from Cretaceous tertiary to Cretaceous paleogene so it took me a couple years to be okay with KPG instead of KT it's like when the
0: year changes and you keep on writing 2018 for ages in all your papers yeah or
1: 2014 Yeah. yeah the KPG mass extinction right so this is when the dinosaurs essentially go extinct, um, other than birds, and is the beginning of the the, the age of mammals. Bird people will point out there's still way more birds than mammals, and so it's still kind of the age of dinosaurs, technically. But, you know. They're
2: I mean,
0: not going to eat you on the way to work.
1: Um, I mean, some of them probably would. <laughs> Shoe bills. <That's>, uh, <laughs> terrible, terrible animals.
0: I have a really obvious question just before we get into the detail, which is why did... Why did the avian dinosaurs, the bird dinosaurs, survive when the rest didn't?
1: Yeah, good question. Thanks. Don't, I don't know. Oh,
0: cool. Okay, that's something people uh, don't know.
1: Well, this is the thing. Whenever whenever people talk about extinction, right, they wanna like, why why this and why not that? And first you have to remember that, like, most of the things that survived that mass extinction also went extinct, right? So mammals make it through, but most mammals go extinct at that boundary. You know, only a couple of lineages of mammals. Yeah, you know, there's a huge argument about this, actually. Not very many different groups of mammals actually make, make it through that boundary, and certainly a huge number of mammals go extinct in the, in the late Cretaceous. Birds also would have suffered a pretty bad extinction, but some obviously make it through. You can think about all the things that people talk about, body size, so small things make it through better than big things. Well, lots of small things also went extinct, including small dinosaurs, including small birds, including small mammals. You can think about things like metabolism. Is it that you know, warm blooded things made it through, and small cold blooded things didn't. Well, most of those dinosaurs were probably warm-blooded, plenty of you know, warm-blooded things also went extinct, and plenty of cold-blooded things made it through, right? So why did crocodiles make it through, but dinosaurs didn't? Well, is it because they were aquatic? Well, lots of aquatic things also go extinct. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like, and I've done this for mammals, and I, other people have done it for other groups. And while you can definitely point to, like, there's tendencies, right? So the only things maybe that make it through are things that have some of these features, but plenty of things that have those same features did not make it through. So it's really, really hard. It's so
0: hard to find a, a hard and fast rule as to what yeah. helped you survive the mass extinction.
1: I mean, if you want hard and fast rules, go to physics. <laughs> this is biology. You know, it's messy.
0: Maybe all the animals got together and just like coordinated it so they could confuse people Six, yeah. six million years later. They yeah. were just like, we'll go extinct, you guys stay. But you stay too, just to really mess with them.
1: Exactly. <laughs> but it is really, really hard to figure out why certain things went extinct. And, and you know... Probably, like a lot of the birds that made it through, were probably pretty indistinguishable from some of the dinosaurs that went extinct, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's lots of small, feathered, you know, hot-blooded dinosaurs running around. Warm-blooded, passionate dinosaurs running
0: around. Are there there any largely accepted, likely? Things that would help you survive that mass extinction, you know, what what are the traits it's that like were
2: burrowing or anything like that?
1: Yeah, so we will talk about burrowing. That's definitely one that comes up a lot for mammals. But you know, I don't have many burrowing birds, right? <laughs> yeah. and Like, yeah, but certainly burrowing probably helped for some things. But there's also things that were um, arboreal, so tree living forms that make it through that boundary. And, you know, some of the small mammals that we find in India. In the late Cretaceous make it through that boundary and those are kind of uh, those are definitely very specialized for living in trees but probably being small probably being warm-blooded helped you know into I'm very being very like Vertebrate focused yeah, <laughs> and actually being very mammal-focused, really. You know, being small in general is a good thing, I suppose, when you're dealing with extinctions, because big things need more resources, more space, um, they probably have lower population sizes, slower reproductive rates, sure. things like that always put you at risk. And when we look at the modern world, and this is, of course, why we're kind of obsessed with extinctions, trying to figure out, as we go into current mass extinction which we are very clearly in
2: and the cause of
1: yeah, yeah. exactly it's an awkward
2: yeah. situation yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: i know i'm hurting Sorry. you but i really want to understand why yeah. <laughs> um we point to these previous bouts and and try and figure that out but it is really difficult you because know, there's a lot of there are some things that help or or hurt um you know surviving these sorts of things but there's also a lot of Randomness, really, in some cases, or there's so much complexity, it's probably hard to figure out specific things that are universal rules.
0: You said obviously it can help us to understand about the current mass extinction we're in. When you're like applying for money to do this research, is is part of your justification for that money that it's got modern applications for what we're currently experiencing? Yeah. Okay. Cool.
1: Absolutely, that is like the primary thing that we I tend to point out in terms of you know the impact of our research. Yeah. Not just for looking at the extinctions, but also for the the previous thing in terms of you know why diversity looks the way it does, you know why certain things evolve the way that they have, you know do certain things evolve faster or slower. Do different parts of like the skull or something like that evolve faster or slower. That helps for figuring out what's going to be more able to evolve to adapt to the changing environment. Mm-hmm. What are, you know, do certain kinds of organisms evolve faster or you know respond better to to rapid environmental change compared to other things? And then that gives us more predictability for what's going to happen, you know, in the imminent future mm-hmm. <laughs> or present. Yeah.
0: Really. <laughs> So you're looking at mass extinctions, but what is your kind of key question there?
1: Oh yeah, okay. So that is very much like a fieldwork focused project, actually, Mm. although we, we have some, you know, large data analysis associated with it. But that's really um, been the focus of my field program. So working in India, where I've worked since, I think I started that program in 2003 or 2004, and that's looking at central and now more South Indian sites. And that's interesting because people have really focused on India around the KPG for a long time. So India during the Cretaceous was an island it used to be part of gondwana so it used to be attached to antarctica and then it moved it broke off of that um, when Gond- gondwana
0: was breaking up so, sorry gondwana being the oh. giant com- continent that at the time it's
1: the southern yeah. supercontinent yes so there was gondwana and laurasia so the southern continent supercontinent was india uh, madagascar australia antarctica africa and south america and they all started breaking up in, in the jurassic and in the cretaceous the original
2: breaks
0: yeah, but yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you know what? No, Too close. No, yeah. <laughs> sorry.
1: I will I will continue to yes. pretend it's not oh, going yeah. to go with
0: with yeah. 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 My yeah, we'll
1: lab is on. primarily funded by the EU, so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's okay. But yeah, so India, you know, broke off from Antarctica and the other Godwin continents, other than Madagascar, which it was attached to for a little bit longer. And then it was just completely by itself in the middle of the ocean until it crashed into asia which was after the mass extinction say it was probably maybe 55 million years ago mm-hmm. so about 10 million years after the extinction say and you know obviously there's this huge change in diversity going across that mass extinction right you get the dinosaurs going extinct and you also get the mammals very 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 quickly radiating you know within a couple hundred thousand years of that mass extinction you get representatives of the modern groups of mammals showing up and that's really fast. I mean uncomfortably fast for evolution. Or for a paleontologist rather. It's fine for evolution. <laughs> I am not comfortable yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It, it just it feels very, very quick, right? Uh-huh. When we think about like the responses of previous mass extinctions, it's usually not so fast. But we see very quickly in mammals all over the world that are representatives of of our, you know, kind of more familiar modern mammal groups. And so this makes a lot of people think, well, they had to have been around before the KPG mass extinction. And if you look at the, their DNA and like how quickly the DNA evolved, you can look at things like how quickly DNA evolves and try to reconstruct when the modern groups would have separated from each other. And that tends to look like it happened before the mass extinction. So this is one thing that we've worked on quite a lot. We actually had a paper out three or four days ago on this. I topic. actually,
0: yeah, uh, <laughs> tried tried my best to understand that paper as a non non paleobiologist. Yeah, one of your lab group actually did a really cool thing where they published like a blog, a, a blog that yeah. was like, this is for people who want to understand it but are not clever enough to understand. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah,
1: it's Thomas, who actually is a former member of my lab group fellow up in Birmingham. Ah, okay. But yeah, it's a a really helpful guide, actually, because it's a really, really interesting topic and it's very controversial and very heavily debated. I actually think we know less about the origins of mammals, or the origins of placental mammals, our kind of mammals, than we do about, like, dinosaurs, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Because of this, like, the fact that it all happened right in the the time of this mass extinction, we get these very different signals from DNA and from fossils, but because of this difference in signals and because of, like, kind of this rapid response, people have often suggested that maybe all these mammal groups were hiding out in India in this like Eden that was just an island until you know India got close enough to Asia for the mammals to jump off and run all over the world oh my God. um which you know <laughs> it happens to be close enough to the KPG mass extinction to be you know an attractive hypothesis which is why we started working in India basically right. um, you know there's very very few members of our larger group the placental mammals known from the southern hemisphere actually almost none some of the only ones that are known from the Cretaceous happen to be from India. And so we went there to look, you know, try and collect more fossils, try and figure out what those things were. And our analysis suggests that they are nothing closely related to the modern groups, and that, that hypothesis does not make sense. Oh, okay. oh, sorry. <laughs> India is not the Garden of Eden. But it's still really interesting. Yeah. The other thing that people talk about as causing this mass extinction is this huge volcanism that was happening in India at the exact same time as the KPG mass extinction. A couple of million years on each side. And so there is a group that maintains that the mass extinction was not caused by this meteor impact in in Mexico, but rather by volcanoes in India. Mm. I don't believe that at all, personally, because we find mammals in these layers in between the volcanic flows. You know, so there'd be like 10 or 20,000 breaks in the volcanism and you get some lakes forming and you find little mammals and dinosaurs and lots of other stuff in those flows. And then all of a sudden the K-P-G mass extinction happens and you don't find them. But actually that's not true. The small mammals keep going through. We find them again afterwards. So I just think if there was volcan- volcanoes that were like erupting in India and were so bad as to drive like some you know sauropod dinosaur in Argentina <laughs> extinct or like some random thing up in Siberia extinct, it probably would have been pretty bad for the small mammals living in India too. Yeah, you can't <laughs> imagine they, they, they were it. just
0: like, oh this is cool. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> no problem. like a know. hat, you know. <laughs>
1: um, so that's my problem with that idea. I think it was a meteor impact, but some people maintain that it was actually India. And then the other thing that I've started more recently is the same period, but in Argentina. So one problem in India is um, you don't get huge fossil outcrops; you get outcrops, you get very, very small areas. So like our two field sites tend to be like road cuts that are you know tiny, like you know one foot deep, you know outcrops. Or we have this site in South India, which is like you know a couple of square kilometers, but not huge. You go to Argentina and you can walk 100 miles in either direction and there's just rock everywhere full of fossils. (laughs) So, we've only been working there a couple of years. but.
0: Um... And your hope is that you're going to find more evidence that might answer this question. Yeah. Of why? And, and the key question, sorry, just to make sure I'm still on track here, is why this huge radiation of mammals occurred. Why the, these mammal species. What happened so quickly?
1: Yeah. What went extinct? Rapidly? What was around before? What things do recover? And where do they recover? Because one, one major problem with the fossil record is that it's heavily biased towards the northern continents. Mm. So, North America, Europe, China, we have these amazing fossil sites. But the southern hemispheres, pretty poorly sampled especially for small things you know you have these huge you know dinosaur focused field programs in, in you know South America and Africa. But finding the small things like mammals um, or or lizards or frogs and things like that that requires a lot more effort. No offense to that <laughs> people. I mean, like if you want to dig out a sauropod dinosaur, it's going to take a long time. so it's a, it's a lot of effort. They're very heavy. Um, but yeah. but you know to find like the small mammals, you have to you have to screen wash. You have to gather all the sediment and then just sit there and just back breaking work of screening out all these little bits and then take them back to the lab and you try and pick through them and find the itty bitty tiny little teeth of these things. until so a lot of people. Don't don't do that.
0: So that's your third? No, that's
1: my second one. Actually. Oh, your second, right. Yeah.
0: So Argentina falls under the same. Yeah, question so it's is... KPG
1: mm-hmm. field based, kind of what's going on around that, that mass extinction. Sure. The third one is a new one, so I don't really know that much about it yet, but basically, you know, we've been developing all these crazy methods to apply to the diversity of vertebrates, and we've pretty much gotten them to work pretty well, where we can compare really, really different things. Another group that is extremely different and has these huge disparities in terms of, you know, some groups being really diverse and other things not being very diverse, and lots of differences in how they develop are insects. Mm. Now, why are there so many insects? Uh, this is like just an outstanding question that people come back to from different perspectives. But insects aren't usually quantified in terms of their anatomy because they are so diverse. It's really, really hard to come up with ways of comparing them. Not just insects, but the larger groups that are part of the the arthropods, right? So things like centipedes and spiders and stuff like that, trilobites. And so basically what we've been trying to do just just for like a little over a year now is come up with a way to actually measure the anatomy of insects and their relatives and figure out why there's so many why there's why they're so successful even within insects there's real differences in how ones that undergo metamorphosis ones that don't how diverse they are um so we're trying to capture that that's a new project
0: i always wonder how whenever you see on like bbc news new new species of insect discovered i'm always wondering who's the person who is like i think this is a new one yeah. <laughs> like how do you spot that right because normally yeah. the picture when you look you're like well it looks kind of, kind yeah. of pretty de- similar de- to the other not. ones. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Checked
1: the millions of other ones. Yeah, yeah. This one's different. This one's yeah.
0: definitely different. Yeah. I mean, how does that happen? Is it yeah. just someone who knows an awful lot and has yeah. game? Right, okay. I mean, <laughs> yeah.
1: like the, you know, if you go to the the museum, and this is actually one of the big reasons that I moved to the museum from UCL was that you know I really I've been thinking about this insect thing for for years. Going back to the question of how different parts of uh, of the body are related to each other, there's some really really weird patterns within insects that were mentioned in. A paper five years ago and kind of a throwaway uh, comment really but it hasn't been measured properly and so you know so I've been thinking about this for years and it's the sort of thing that you really need to have huge amounts of collections and a whole bunch of people actually know something about insects unlike myself to work with and so the museum is perfect in that way so we're just getting this off the ground and I think yeah, it'll be really fun. That's
2: cool. Are you Is, it, <laughs> is it fossil insects? Are they, are they commonly preserved? Are, well, there
1: are like... actually some really great fossil insects. One of my first papers, which is something I didn't do much on except collect the specimens, was uh, you know these nice bee specimens actually from Peru. So you can get really nice things in amber and stuff like that, um, or in other situations. There's also good relatives of insects that are preserved, so trilobites, right? <laughs> things like that, spiders. You know, so there there is actually a pretty good fossil record for a lot of different groups um, that are really that are in that larger group.
0: I wonder when you're working at the museum, you've you've talked a few times about how cool it is having all these other experts around you who are working on these different things. Is it a really awesome environment for collaboration? Do you get to work with these teams who are different but complementary in a way?
1: Yeah, it's a really great environment for that sort of thing. And you know, when I first moved there, you know, a little over a year ago, you just pass people in the hallway and they'd be like, Hey, blah blah so you just moved here and, and you'd ask them what they work on and everyone there is so excited about everything that they're working on. Yeah. Um, and it's just really, really fun
0: in that way. I think you touched on two things we like about Planet Science there as well, which is getting lots of science enthusiasts in the pub is always a good thing. (laughs) And also, yeah, as you say, just hearing anyone talk with extreme passion about their very niche research area is really cool
1: scientists from all over the world are constantly coming to the museum to use the collections and so i think a week probably doesn't go by where there isn't somebody visiting who you want to like grab lunch with and talk about and hear about what they're working on and tell them what you're thinking about and then get their feedback on it and you know developing new collaborations and things like that um so in that sense it's, it's you know kind of irreplaceable
0: now we're kitted out with drinks this is finally we can refer to it as the Painter science podcast <laughs> okay. once again yes, cheers guys cheers thank you very much for joining cheers. us This is a perfect time to say as well what a fantastic room we're in, what a fitting room for the content of today's episode, which has involved a lot of Indian excavation and tigers so far. This uh, Imperial Durbar is kitted out in probably the most beautiful way (laughs) we've had a pub kitted out so far. We're surrounded by beautiful turquoise walls, house plants, kind of like... Objet d'art. Objet (laughs) d'art, yeah. yeah. It's, It's lovely. Yeah. We've covered the big three. And I'm acutely aware we've also kept you for quite a long time on a Sunday evening. But I did want to ask you uh, a little bit about what you get up to when you're not getting an incredible amount of research done. We've not really talked to you <laughs> about, about your life. Kind of extinctions and insects and mammals and like everything else. Your, your publication history suggests you <laughs> yeah. get a lot of research done. Yeah. <laughs> but I wondered what, what what do you do when you're not at the Natural History Museum being awesome?
1: I mean, I don't mind the pub.
2: <laughs> <If you> good.
1: <laughs> good. So, I have two little kids. I have a two and a half year old, and uh, my daughter is going to turn six uh, on March 16th. So, obviously, we do lots of fun stuff at home. We have, well, our puppy turned one um, just uh, last weekend. What kind of dog? <laughs> he's a lurcher. Oh, a lurcher. Oh. I
0: got two lurchers. Yeah.
1: So, <laughs> everyone who looks at him thinks he's a saluki. What's he called? <laughs> Casper. Oh, that's a good name. Uh, yeah. So, we, you know, we spend a lot of time in the common or going out for a walk. Or hikes and things like that. You know, just because that's what we like to do. What else do we do? I mean, we do travel an insane amount. You know, four or five weeks goes by with me actually in London. That's kind of unusual. So we spend a lot of time, like, you know, in the states or in India. Or my husband's from Norway, so we're up there a lot. Yeah, so we travel and just spend a lot of times outdoors. Really.
0: Well, it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you. It's been absolutely wonderful. Yeah, we can all relax now. <laughs> This podcast is made possible by Brilliant.org, a great resource if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and explaining the science behind them.
2: Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Challenges, makes learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering, or computer science.
0: And they've got a course on computational biology and the unravelling of what makes us tick, including a chapter on the tree of life, which you're bound to love, especially since using the link in the podcast description, we'll get the first two. 200 users, 20% off their premium plan. So, we find ourselves at the end of another episode of the Pint of Science podcast. That was a lot of fun. Thank you very much to Anjali Goswami and her adorable children who arrived at the end there. We may release that as bonus content or something like that. We had some very cute cameos there from uh Oh, that was, was pretty
2: adorable, yeah. Didn't quite manage to find out what the favourite dinosaurs were there, so might have to do a repeat episode.
0: Indeed, you're quite right. So, um, we've had a lot of fun this week in the Imperial Durbar. We really wish we could show you. We probably can in the one photo we do have from the recording. <laughs> (laughs) but the interior design here was so suitable for that podcast. All the chat about tigers in India, we we really do feel like we could be in some kind of Indian palace right here. Oh, yeah, it's gorgeous. So, of course, we have another episode lined up for you next Monday morning. Please do come back then and subscribe to make sure you don't even have to remember your phone will do it for you. We'll uh, bring another episode of the Planet of Science podcast to you next Monday morning. Subscribe, review us, rate us, uh, tell your friends about us. We want everyone to join us in the pub for next week's episode. Hello everyone, I'm Sam, the producer of the Pint of Science podcast. I usually sit behind the desk whilst Callum and Jim do the talking. But I do have a podcast of my own, and since you're clearly into learning and having a bit of fun, you might just like it. It's called That Was Genius, and it's a history podcast in which my friend Tom and I surprise each other every week with a funny, gruesome, or just plain odd historical story. Other than having a weekly theme, the rest is up for grabs, so there's lots of silly jokes and plenty of dubious accents. A bit like these. Mais oui, these 8 months old donuts, I have never tested anything like it, sacre bleu! I have never tested anything so hard. I love the presentation box. When I open it, all the flies come out. It's beautiful.
1: It is a multi-sensory experience.
0: It is wonderful, (laughs) fantastic. The the smell, the sight. If you're interested in finding out more, search your favourite podcast app for That Was Genius or go to www.thatwasgeniuspodcast.com.